Well, this morning, we're going to continue our Christmas series as we think about the virgin birth. Not something talked about very often these days, the virgin birth. It's uh, problematic for the modern thinker at times, but we're going to think about it and discuss it and really think about its significance for our lives. Why does it matter? Is it important? Is it significant? But at the end of the day, what I really want is for you to come away from this thinking about the Christian message as entirely unique. I want you to be able to say, our God is gracious. He's a God who comes down. He's a God who came after us. This is really a message about the gospel, the good news. The significance of the virgin birth. I want to say right up front, I want to make the declaration that the virgin birth is absolutely essential to our faith. It is absolutely necessary if we would be saved, if we would be made right with the God of the universe, the holy God of, of time and space, we would have to have a God who would come on a rescue mission, who would be born of a virgin, fully God and fully man. Otherwise, there is no salvation. And so this morning, we proclaim the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. The virgin birth. What is the virgin birth? Let's do some doctrine. Big, scary word, but it just means teaching. This is essential teaching. When we say virgin birth, we mean the Christian teaching that Jesus was miraculously conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin Mary, without sexual union with a man. So this is miraculous. People say, I don't think I could believe this. We have students who come to Tri-State and who sometimes walk into Emmaus and they struggle and they go, I, I have a hard time with miracles. Now, if this is all there is, if there's nothing outside the box, if we live in a closed universe, then you're right. A virgin birth is ridiculous. Miracles won't happen because there's just us, right? The naturalistic worldview. But if there is a God outside of time and space and he is the one who set this into motion, if there is a God outside of time and space and he took the nothing that was there and he spoke and we got everything, he spoke to nothing and nothing obeyed, then a miracle is not a problem. And so think about it. This God spoke into nothing and we got everything. A virgin birth for him, child's play. Child's play. Listen to Luke. Open up with me if you would in your Bibles. Luke chapter 1, verse 34 through 35. This is the truth about the virgin birth. Luke chapter 1, verse 34 through 35. An angel has just told Mary these very words. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call his name Jesus. In response, Mark asks, Mary asks, that is, she asks, how will this be since I'm a virgin? You will conceive, you'll give birth to a son, you'll call his name Jesus. How can this be since I'm a virgin? She understands like we would today. This doesn't normally happen. How is this possible? But we know all things are possible with God. And that's what the angel says. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Let's pray right now. Father, we ask for your help. We pray that you'd be working in our midst, even as the Word of God is preached, Lord, as 
we flesh out the significance of your truths and scripture. Lord, meet us where we're at. Some of us don't know you yet, perhaps. And we pray that you'd be wooing us to yourself, softening our heart, opening our eyes, changing our mind, convicting us of our sin, letting us see the cross as the wisdom and power of God. For those of us who know you already and who are your children, Lord, we pray that you'd stir our hearts to reverence and even moving us to allegiance, deeper allegiance. Some here today are really hurting. They're feeling pain at Christmas time. We pray that this message of the virgin birth of your incarnation, your coming to live among us would bring comfort and peace. Move in our midst now, we ask it. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I heard the story, I read the story several years ago about a little boy named Martin Turgan. June 5th, 1978, seven-year-old Martin He was playing by the Prairie River in Canada and he slipped off the wharf, off the bank, and he fell in. Now, at least a dozen adults were standing right there on the bank and they saw him struggle for several minutes before he sank and he drowned. Why didn't anyone jump in? No one jumped in to save Martin. True story. Well, the thing is just upstream was a plant, a factory, that had been dumping raw sewage right into the river. The water was, it was very dirty. It was dangerous for your health, of course. And so nobody jumped in to save little Martin. It's easy at times to feel like God is like that. He's on the bank of our lives and he sees us struggling in the putrid waters of this broken world and he stays distant. He doesn't jump on. He, he's just kind of a distant landlord, Right? Look, I'm not going to dive in after you people, (laughs) he says. Not until you clean up your life a little bit. That's that's moralism. That's religion. I I will not come after you or or meet you until you come halfway. You clean up a little bit. You you shower and clean up, and then I'll give you a bath. But Jesus and the virgin birth, God in the incarnation, is the God who comes after us. He's a God that comes near and he enters into our broken situation, to our broken world. I mean, you know John 1, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. Nothing that was made was made apart from him. And then you jump down to verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and he pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. He became flesh. He become, became one of us. He has come. He has been in our flesh, fully God and fully man. He's walked a mile in our shoes. He's been here. I'm coming after you even while you're yet sinners, he says. And God demonstrates his love in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this screams grace. Grace is when you get something you don't deserve. Grace is undeserved kindness from a king who's unobligated to us. And this is the story of how God came down. A king was born, and he, the hero, died for the villains. It's really a story of amazing grace. God came down. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book called Miracles, you've, you've got to check it out. I love, I, I love some C.S. Lewis. He offers a beautiful analogy of the incarnation. He writes, think of a pearl diver, a pearl diver. 
First, he strips down and he glances in the air, takes a deep breath, fills his lungs, and then he goes splash and he vanishes and he rushes down through the green, warm water into the black, cold water, down, down through the increasing pressure into death-like regions of ooze and slime and old decay at the bottom of the sea, and then up again. Back up again, he ascends back into the color and the light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing, the pearl that he went down to recover. He and it are covered now that they have come up into the light. That's the story of the incarnation. God came down. The word became flesh. God with us. In Jesus, God strips himself, if you will. He humbles himself to the point of death. He plunges into the murky waters of our broken humanity. He vanishes and he plunges deeper and deeper into our lives. But he does it for us. That's the amazing thing. He, he does it to seek and to find and to raise up to new life something incredibly precious to him. We are of great worth, although we are unworthy. But he did it for you and for me. He didn't need us, by the way, right? God was not bored, Trinity, but he wanted us. And the incarnation, the story of Christmas, reminds me of that. And I just keep thinking of one word over and over again, grace. This is just pure grace. But what made this possible, a virgin birth. What made the incarnation where God became flesh and dwelt among us, what made that possible? The vehicle for this was the virgin birth, to be precise, the virgin conception, really. Can you see, can you see that, how, how this made possible the entrance of God into our humanity, the virgin birth? How it's really a unique story of grace, the virgin birth, the incarnation, they scream grace, God came down. Let me put it this way. A thousand times in history, a baby became a king. But only once in history did a king become a baby. It's a unique story of grace. Again, religion is man climbing, ascending to God with his efforts and his works and his morality, trying to live up to some ethic or to some philosophy. But Christianity is God descending to man, grace. Today, we're going to reflect on the significance and the importance of the virgin birth and the incarnation, but please don't miss the big idea. God's a God of grace. He's come near. What are you going to do with him? Let's pray again. Father, we're just so thankful for the Lord Jesus. We don't deserve this. We were, I mean, I think of Romans 5, we're helpless, we're sinners, we're called enemies, enemies of you. And yet you came after us, the hero who would die for the villains. Let us see today how important this is to our lives. Again, warm our hearts. Stir our affections for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. So there is a liberal pastor named Rob Bell. You may have seen some of his videos. You may have read one of his books. You've heard about him maybe. He famously or infamously argued more than about a decade ago that it wouldn't be such a big deal if we found out that Jesus had an earthly father, maybe some guy named Larry. That's what he said irreverently. It wouldn't really matter if Jesus didn't have a virgin birth. I mean, would it really change our Christian faith? In other words, the Christian faith doesn't really need a virgin birth. It's hard for modern people to, to swallow. So let's not offend. Let's not create stumbling blocks. So 
Maybe Jesus was born in a normal way, just like you and me from some guy named Larry. I doubt that's a Hebrew name. Inconsequential, not matter, far from it. One writer said this, and he said it well. If Jesus had not been born of a human woman, Mary, we could not believe in his full humanity. But if his birth were like any other human conception through the union of a human father and mother, maybe Larry, we would question his full, his full deity. Wouldn't we? We'd question his full deity if there hadn't been that supernatural divine element to the story. And today, again, we're seeing that the virgin birth is necessary to secure both the real human nature of Christ, but also the full deity of Christ, all in one person. And then on top of that, the virgin conception, it makes possible the sinlessness of Jesus. If Jesus is born of a man and a woman, Jesus has a sin nature and he can't die for our sins. So you see how significant this is. This isn't just some theology, some doctrine. This is the most important thing about us, what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus. We have to believe that he was fully God and fully man, that he was sinless. It affects our redemption story, our salvation story. So let's just think through this point, point, point. We want to be thinkers. Number one, the virgin birth shows how Jesus can be fully God and fully man all at the same time. One writer that helped me to really flesh this out and grasp it was Wayne Grudem. And of course, he's not inspired. He's just a guy. But this was helpful. I don't want you to think this is my thought. I'm not that smart. The virgin birth made possible, he said, the uniting of full deity and the full humanity in one person. This was the means God used to send the divine son into the world as a man. He, he says this, this is interesting. If we think for a moment of other possible ways in which Christ might have come to earth, none of them would so clearly unite the humanity and deity in one person. It probably would have been possible for God to create Jesus as a complete human being in heaven and maybe send him to descend down from heaven to earth without the benefit of any human parent like Mary. But then it would have been very hard for us to see how Jesus could be fully human as we are, nor would he be part of the human race that physically descended from Adam. He was born of a woman, Mary, and therefore fully human. On the other hand, he says, on the other hand, what if Jesus had come into the world with two human parents, both a father and a mother by conception? In that case, it would have been really hard for us to understand how Jesus was fully God, since his origin was like ours in every way. When we think of other possibilities like this, it helps us to understand how God in his wisdom ordained the combination, a combination of the human and the divine influence in the birth of Christ, so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth of a woman, and his full deity would be evident to us from the fact that his conception in Mary's womb was by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. This one is fully man. He's from Mary. Fully God. He's born of the, conceived of the Holy Spirit. You see God's wisdom? It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's just perfect. You wouldn't expect anything else. Is the virgin birth necessary? Absolutely. And it is how God enters our humanity. 
The virgin birth tells us that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He's the God man. I just want to take a moment to kind of draw attention to the virgin birth and how it points to Jesus' deity. This is something I think we need to recover in the church and in our culture, the deity of Christ and what that means for our lives, how we live. This supernatural, miraculous virgin birth, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. It provides the divine dimension of the story and it makes evident that Jesus was more than a mere man. See, I grew up in a liberal Christian church that taught that Jesus was a good moral teacher. Just another road to Rome, another good moral teacher on equal stance with Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or any other. Just another way, another good teacher. But is that all he was? Can we leave him there as just another good moral teacher? One that doesn't change our lives, one who doesn't need our allegiance or our worship. Was the one born of a virgin fully God? That's the point of the virgin birth. He was fully human. He was fully God. I mean, think about it. It's pretty, pretty evident. Listen to the gospel accounts. In Luke chapter 2, verse 11, today, remember the great announcement, and Charlie Brown reads this in his Christmas play. Chapter 2 of Luke, the announcement of the angels to the shepherds. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. He's the Lord. Kurios. This is the Old Testament name for God. This is the Lord. This isn't just a domesticated baby we put in a box. No wonder Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Exactly. The one born of a virgin was in fact God in our midst. God with us. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. We read that the wise men, wise men still follow him. That's what the bumper sticker says. The wise men saw his star when it rose. They said, now we have come to worship him. We should, they were wise. We should follow in their footsteps. Worship. That's the correct response to Jesus Christ. Let's put some practical flesh out implications on this for a minute. Most Americans are happy to celebrate the baby Jesus. I've seen the Christmas cards. We're happy with a baby Jesus, but that's the problem. We want to just leave him there though. Kind of a domesticated Christmas is fine. A kind of a decaffeinated Christmas where we have a baby. I mean, babies are sweet and cute and they don't offend us. They don't challenge us. See, he was a baby, and we fully affirm that, a human baby, but he grew up, and he died on a cross after living a perfect life. He was a perfect infant, perfect two-year-old. Can you imagine a perfect toddler? Can't imagine that. He was a perfect tween, a perfect teen. Can you imagine that? (laughs) This is of God. He was a perfect man, and he died on a cross. He was buried, according to the Scriptures. And he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he was ascended to heaven. He's exalted at God's right hand right now. He's Lord in the highest sense. And so we can't leave him just in a manger. We have to tell the rest of the story, right? We have to go all the way to his exaltation. He demands our worship. He demands our allegiance. The virgin birth teaches us that Jesus was the God man. 
He, we must not leave him as a tame baby who doesn't challenge our lives, who doesn't call us to follow him, who doesn't call us to give our whole life to him. Again, little C.S. Lewis, if you don't mind, he warns us, he gives a stern warning in one of his books about domesticating Jesus. He says, I'm trying here to prevent, in this book, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Oh, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of a man who says, I'm a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. I mean, think about the things Jesus said. Before Abraham was born, I am. He claimed the name and self-existence of God. He's either a nut or a liar. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He accepted worship. The man that says the things that Jesus said is either a lunatic or a liar. Or, then he says, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. You can fall at his feet, though, and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And, and one part we never read in this quote is this. We are faced then with a frightening alternative. This man we are talking about, Jesus, was either and is either just what he said he was or else a lunatic or something worse. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. God has landed on enemy-occupied territory in human form. This is revolutionary truth. It really is. That we often take for granted. The virgin birth secures the truth that Jesus is the God-man. Emmanuel, God with us. And therefore worthy of our worship and our complete devotion. And so the virgin birth, inconsequential, I'm sorry, Mr. Bell, you got it wrong. Farewell, Mr. Bell. You've, lo- you've left Orthodox Christianity, biblical Christianity behind. Farewell, fa- my friend. We pray for you. The virgin birth tells us that Jesus is the only one qualified and able to save humanity. Do you see how significant this is to our salvation story? Not just good sound doctrine, but our salvation story. If he's not fully God and if he's not fully man, he can't save us. He's the only one qualified. Only one person matches up to the fingerprint evidence on this one. If Christ would die for our sin, he would have to be fully human. That he might, first of all, die because God can't die in his perfect nature. God would have to take on another nature, a human nature, that he might die. And that he might die as our human representative in our place. But at the same time, this one would have to, if he would pay for our sins, this person would have to be fully God so that he might bear the infinite wrath of a holy God in our place and so that he might represent us to God the Father. He'd have to be the God-man. No one else can save. And that's why it's so ridiculous when we claim that any man other than Jesus, anyone else, could be a way to heaven. It's impossible. 
So here's the uniqueness of Jesus, and it's seen ultimately through the virgin birth and the incarnation. Only Christ can save. And so we heartily proclaim what Peter said in Acts 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Or I stand with the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But it doesn't just teach us that Jesus is fully God and fully man. It also teaches us the all-important truth that Jesus was sinless. Another important implication of virgin birth, the sinlessness of Christ, made possible through a virgin conception. Let's think about it. Again, a writer says, this is helpful. If Jesus had been born, if he had been born of two human parents, it is very difficult to understand how he could have been exempt kept from the guilt of Adam's sin and become a new head of the human race. And it would seem only an arbitrary act of God that Jesus could be born without a sin nature. Yet Jesus' sinlessness, his sinlessness as the new head of the human race and as the atoning sacrificial lamb of God is absolutely vital to our salvation. In other words, the virgin birth makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. All human beings, whether we like to admit it or not, have inherited Adam's guilt and his sin nature. We sin because we're sinners. I have inherited sin. I've inherited my dad's characteristics. I have his bushy eyebrows, his unibrow, uh, his height, his uh, humility and good looks. Um, Just kidding. Not his humor. But I've inherited things from him real physical traits and characters. We have, in a sense, inherited spiritually from our first father, Adam, down the line through our fathers, a sin nature. We sin because we're sinners. And so what the virgin birth means is the fact that Jesus did not have a human father, Joseph, means that the line of descent from Adam is partially interrupted. It's interrupted. Jesus did not descend from Adam in exactly the same way in which other human beings have descended from Adam. And this helps us to understand why the legal guilt of Adam and the moral corruption, that moral pollution that runs through us all, does not belong to him as it does to the rest of us. You see that? Isn't that beautiful? It's perfect. God knew what he was doing. This reality, Jesus' sinlessness, seems to indicate this. I mean, it's indicated really in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Listen to this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, Mary. Therefore, the child to be born of you will be called Holy, Holy, the Son of God. The virgin birth is absolutely necessary. See, if he had a sin nature, he couldn't die for us because he'd have to die for his own sin, but he wasn't dying for his sin. 1 Corinthians 15 says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins. He didn't just die. That's not the good news. He died for our sins, not his own. And so we can have a savior. Hebrews 4 is very clear. We have a high priest who has been tempted in every way as we, because he's been here. Just as we are, yet he did not sin. But others who have existed and claimed to point to the way, you look at their story, look at their biography, they have sin. They have sin. He does not. No one else can save you. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
So you see the theological significance of Jesus' virgin birth. And yet, as we close, I want to consider the practical significance for our lives sitting here at this moment. What does this mean for my life? The virgin birth is the vehicle of the incarnation. That is, the virgin birth makes possible the incarnation where God becomes man, where God becomes flesh and he dwells among us. That truth right there is powerful. It's life-changing. Why is it so important? It tells us that God is with us, and it tells us that God is for us. It tells us, number one, that God is with us, even in the midst of our brokenness and suffering. You know, I can't always tell someone why evil, suffering, pain, trials have touched their lives. Done a lot of years of pastoral ministry. Sat by a lot of deathbeds. I've buried young people. I've cried by people's side. I've seen tragedy. And there are times I just can't tell them why. Only God knows in his sovereignty and his wisdom why. But I can tell them who. I can tell them who's with them in the suffering. And sometimes, isn't that enough? I mean, Christmas is a joyous time of year. There's no doubt about it. But it's also a very depressing time of year. More suicides happen at Christmas than any other time of the year. It's a, it's a tough time of year because you think about your loved ones who you don't celebrate Christmas with anymore. And I know for some of you here today, this is a really tough morning. You've suffered loss. What gets you through Christmas? What gets you through living in a broken, hurting world? You know, it seems like every time you turn on the news anymore, there's just another tragedy. Loss of life, another mass shooting among our young people. Oxford High School. There's a lot of bad news out there. And it doesn't seem like it, but you know, it was, it's been nine years since the Sandy Hook tragedy. Remember the Sandy Hook tragedy? December 14th, 2012 in Newport, Connecticut. A disturbed 20-year-old broke into a high school and he took 20 lives, first graders and six staff members' lives. And I think the most disturbing thing about that is that tragedy happened 11 days before Christmas. I mean, such a joyous time of year, but 26 families. I can't even imagine. The worst fear for me is losing a child. Can you imagine? How do you deal with Christmas? How do you deal with life in that situation? I think there's only one thing that gets me through that, is knowing that God's been here and he understands. We have a sympathetic high priest. No other faith can say this. They can't say this. They can say, well, someone sent a message. They've stood on the bank and they've sent a, a document a sacred text. They've sent angels, a prophet. But we have a God who's come. He's sent prophets. He's sent angels. He's sent us a sacred text. But he's also come. And he's put on our flesh. And he's cried by the tomb of a friend. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. He's felt pain. He's been here. We can never say to God, you don't know what it's like. God can say, I've lost a child. Ellie Weisel was a survival of the, and I'm probably getting his name wrong, I'll ask Chris later. He, he was a survival, survivor of the dreaded Nazi concentration camp, Auschwitz. And he wrote of his, his experiences in a, an incredible book called Night. In that book, he relates the harrowing story of two Jewish men and a little Jewish boy hanged alongside one another. Having mounted the stairs, the two adults cried, long live liberty. The little boy was silent. Behind Elie Weisel, someone desperately cried out, where is God? Where is he? The chairs were kicked out from underneath the victims. The crowd had to stand there and watch this. Weisel heard 
the question again, where is God now? And standing there, Weisel heard a voice inside himself answering, where is God? There he is. He's hanging there on the gallows. What he meant was God is dead to me. God died there because how could God let that happen? But there's another way to interpret that and look into that story. In the incarnation, God suffers with those who suffer. He's, he's been here. He's seen, he has seen the pain. He has hung from his gallows. It was a cross. He's not abandoned us. He's been here. He's been here. He knows what it's like. In the incarnation, we are joined by God. We see his solidarity with us. We see a king and a king who cares. A thousand times before, a baby's become a king, but only once in history has a king become a baby. That's our story, isn't it? It makes you want to worship. It gets me excited. It touches my heart. It gives me comfort. It brings me peace, and it makes me think of grace. It's a story of grace, isn't it? And this tells me that God is for us. Our situation was so bad off that Jesus had to come rescue us. See, Christianity is not self-salvation. It's God come to the rescue. It is a rescue story. We were so bad off. Jesus said, with men, salvation's impossible. You can't earn your salvation. You can't work for it. Our actions are too corrupted because our, our motives are too corrupted. We've been touched by sin. But someone came down to rescue us. And so it's a free gift. This is God's gift to you. We've, been, we've purchased like 25 gifts with all these gift exchanges this week. <laughs> but you know, the greatest gift of all is really the one that we're, we're celebrating underneath it all. It's that God sent his son. God gave us a gift. How will you respond to it today? Scripture tells you how to respond to God's free gift. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. Or I think a little early on, John 1 verse 12, it says, to as many as received him, to as many as believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Have you opened that present? Have you appropriated him and made him your own personal savior? And believers, are you resting on him? the God who is there, the God who is a sympathetic high priest, the Savior who's been here. Are you trusting him right now, even in your pain? We have a lot to worship him for. Father, we're so thankful for the virgin birth that it really shows us that we could never have solved our human problem, our sin problem on our own. It took you miraculously breaking into our broken world to save us. It took the Savior, the Lord Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with God as something to use for his own advantage, made himself of no reputation, emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross for us. Lord, help us to worship you at Christmas and all year round. We thank you that you love us enough to come save us and not just stand there on the bank watching us. We praise you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.